This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. Broadcasting from the rightful lands of the Tiwa people. I'm Antonio Garcia. Tonight, we are happy to bring you a special edition of Generation Justice, where we explore mental health, health inequities, and then specifically, wellness in indigenous communities. We have two very compelling conversations to share with you. First, GJ member Madumita Santanam speaks with Teresa Gomez, a member of the Pueblo of Isleta and program manager of Honoring Native Life at UNM's Community Behavioral Health, and Suzanne Perlman, a national trainer of trainers in the Mental Health First Aid Program and longtime behavioral health expert. Teresa and Suzanne have both dedicated their careers to being in service through their work of shifting the Western model of wellness to be more accessible to all BIPOC communities. They bring us their experience and expertise through a big picture lens of mental health and wellness. This conversation will be followed by a song Suzanne chose for us, Wonderwall by Oasis. In our second conversation this evening, I had the great privilege to meet with two amazing indigenous behavioral health specialists. Jennifer Nanez, who is an enrolled tribal member of the Pueblo of Acoma and a training and technical assistance coordinator with the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, Tribal Training and Technical Assistance Center. And Connie O'Mara, a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Tribe who has worked to promote wellness for over 33 years. She currently works as a grantee technical assistant for Native Connections, a national youth-focused preventative initiative funded by SAMHSA. Both of these conversations were rich and full of helpful and insightful information. We are sharing part of the interviews in tonight's program, and you can find the full interviews on our social media platforms. We hope you find this special program useful and helpful for you and your families on your own journeys through health and well-being. This is Madhumita Santanam with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Teresa Gomez, an enrolled member of the Pueblo of Isleta and a lifelong resident of New Mexico. She currently serves as a program manager for honoring Native life at the University of New Mexico's Community Behavioral Health Division and Suzanne Perlman, a nationally recognized specialist in curricula development, training programs, as well as subject matter expert in cultural adaptations of standardized curricula with a focus on equity and access. Welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We would love to get to know you more. So would you please share a little bit about yourselves? We'll start with Teresa. Okay, great. And good afternoon. It's great to be here with you all. And uh, again, my name is Teresa Gomez and I am from the Pueblo of Isleta. And I have been working in the area of health and mental health for quite a number of years. And primarily my focus has been on Native American communities, but my focus also has been around health equity and health disparities at a local and national level. I am a ovarian cancer survivor, and so I do a lot of work around equity and disparities in the cancer arena. And so it's just really lovely to be here with you all today. Suzanne? Yeah, this is Suzanne. Thank you again for having us, Madhu. 
We are so excited to be here. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I am actually, I work for myself developing curricula and training programs, but also a national trainer of mental health first aid and the programs that they offer and training new instructors and getting the curriculum out broadly. And actually that work itself really connected Teresa and myself and other advocates and communities around how do we take a model that's focusing on mental health and really honor experiences of communities that don't always look exactly like that Western experience. In fact, most don't. And so that really had sparked a lot of work for us around mental health and mental health equity and really supporting not only folks experience, but also young people. We know most mental illnesses tend to show up in adolescence. And so how do we get ahead of that? And so that's been a real big passion that Teresa and I and others have worked on together. Thank you for sharing that. And I'm so happy that you both are here. So both of you specialize in working with indigenous people or youth. Why is that important to you? And we'll start with Teresa. Well, it's important to me because as you and I have mentioned is I grew up in the Pueblo of Isleta and my work being focused on um, native communities and indigenous populations, I know and have lived and experienced those traumas and things that have affected, negatively impacted our tribal and and other communities here in New Mexico. And so I know that sometimes it can be overwhelming work, but I also know that making the difference in one person's life really means a lot. And I know that as we get the message out about mental health and our indigenous communities, the wider we are able to spread that message, I think the more impact that we'll have. And then Suzanne, if you'd like to share. I would say, you know, I while I have expertise in developing curriculum and training, really my expertise in working with tribes is more so amplifying the voices of those communities. I'm not an enrolled member. And so as a guest that's invited into communities, I'm really passionate about making sure that when we're talking about health inequities, it's so important to contextualize the systems that have created those inequities and that it's not the individual, the family, the communities that are often blamed for mental health challenges or substance use disorders, but rather systems that are developed historically for and by Western audiences that often have historically traumatized communities or have not always served adequately those communities. And so really it's more so making sure that my role is to adequately, authentically amplify those voices and curriculum that's developed for and by those communities. Thank you both so much for sharing that. It really means a lot. So at this time when our physical health is so threatened by this pandemic, can you talk about the impact of that on our mental health? Maybe we can start with Teresa. Yes, absolutely. We can't forget the impact that this pandemic has had on everyone's mental health. And from first responders to ER doctors to, you know, nurses to frontline workers to every person has been affected in some way. Their mental health has been affected by this pandemic. And what we're seeing in places like New Mexico and within our indigenous communities and all of our communities is that separation. We are social beings and we have not been able to 
connect with one another unless it's through Zoom or telephone or you know means that we're not able to gather in a way that is meaningful to us and to our families. And so the pandemic definitely has had a negative impact, but I also want to say that we really need to think about the resources and the strengths that we have within us and within our families and within our communities that are at our fingertips. And, and we really wanna focus not only on the risks and the negative impacts, but what are some of the strengths? What are some of the things that have come out of this? That, you know, in some cases, our families are closer. In some cases, our families talk to each other more often. In some cases, we are seeing that families are talking about traditions and ceremonies and, and our cultures in, in ways that we didn't pre-pandemic because now we ha actually have the time. We've slowed down a little bit our busy life where we're not as engaged maybe sometimes with our families as we could be. And so I think in, in some respects, the pandemic has really opened a door to looking at us in a way that says, yes, we're not able to maybe physically be together, but there are surely a lot of strengths and tools, I guess, that we have that can make us stronger people. And Suzanne? Yeah, I just want to continue on with this, this thought process that Teresa's brought up, which is, you know, when we think about even the root word of disorder just means out of balance. And so all of us, you know, taking a look at the risk factors that exist in our life and the strengths and resilience and protective factors that we have in our life, it's so important that they don't live isolated. And so at this time in particular, where we know that there are higher risk factors, people who have chronic conditions maybe are more isolated and access to care might be scarier, or we already know that there's uprisings and that we're addressing racism in our country and seeing it specifically even with the treatment of COVID, there's all these additional risk factors that are existing and maybe the things that we did to take care of ourselves, we have less access to. But I love that Teresa's pointing out that also there's this beauty of community and culture and particularly she's bringing up in indigenous communities that still figuring out ways to come together in spite of trauma and risk factors continuing to connect. And I just want to point out that the most important thing that we can do is to normalize the conversation around mental health. Mental illnesses are common. Half of us in our lifetime will be impacted by a mental illness. And so if we can, in our own ways, in our own cultures, in our own languages and tradition, normalize a conversation about that during the pandemic, we actually, and, and I'll share one of my favorite quotes, is that when people don't have to hide their pain, it becomes less dangerous. And so how are we creating spaces where we can normalize conversations and really lean into our strengths and resilience in our community in spite of such incredible risk factors that are existing right now? Absolutely. And thank you for sharing not only the uh, negative aspects of mental health in during the pandemic, but positive aspects as well. I think it's very beneficial. What are the roadblocks for getting support and help? There, again, especially within our rural and frontier and indigenous communities, and even in the urban areas that we work in, there are numerous barriers. You know, when we think about access to mental health care, 
even though we may want it, there may not be a facility that we could go to, or we may not have insurance, or we may have insurance, but the insurance isn't adequate enough, or maybe a particular carrier or a particular agency doesn't accept the insurance that you have. And so we see that there are a lot of monetary reasons why people are not able to access services, but also just the availability in and of itself. I know within the state of New Mexico, with regards to workforce, and you pick and choose whatever area you want to talk about, but it specifically around mental and behavioral health, the workforce is so scarce, especially in rural and frontier communities. Again, we're social beings. We tend to want to help one another. And I find that when I'm speaking to someone who not only looks like me, but who has the same experience as I do, then it makes my ability to become healthier a lot easier. If I feel comfortable speaking with someone who has had the same experience, but I think workforce is a major issue that the state of New Mexico and others are really going to have to look at how do we overcome that particular barrier. And Suzanne? Yeah, I again, just taking it from where Teresa was leaving off, this important factor of having peers, family members, community members who look like you, talk like you, have your, your family's best interest at heart, having more information about mental wellness. You cannot have wellness without mental wellness. And so having many people, you know, when you break your ankle, you don't walk on it until a doctor runs into you. Generally, you have some information or somebody in your life supports you around that. And we need more people on the ground in our communities who have more information about mental wellness that can hold conversations. People in recovery often say the number one reason why they sought recovery was because someone close to them suggested it and normalized the conversation and didn't judge them. And so, yes, professionals and having professionals who represent the communities that they're serving are so, so important, but also having those immediate people who notice shifts and changes and concerns so that they can support someone. Um, It's so true that human connection and socialization drives wellness and illnesses often drive continued isolation. And so the people who would notice that most are the people in our community, the people who look like and talk like us who are around us. And so it's so important that we don't just have professionals having information, but that we're all working together to support each other. Absolutely. I totally agree with both of you. And thank you so much for sharing that. What are some of the things that sustain mental health? When we think about increased risk factors, I want us to imagine a seesaw where on one side, we have things that impact our our mental wellness potentially negatively. Now, risk factors are not causal. Risk factors do not cause mental illness, but they do increase the probability. And so that means that when we think about this seesaw, on the other end, we have to have those things that strengthen our mental wellness, protect us against some of those risk factors in our life. And so I think it's really important for all of us to focus on what restores us. First of all, how do we even know that 
we're being impacted negatively. What are our tells? I can say for me, I get a little rough around the edges, maybe a little more apathetic when I know that I need some self-care, I need some mental health refueling. And so I think it's so important for folks to be able to not only have some insight and some information, but also tools in their toolbox to be able to take care of themselves and to reach out to others. And, and one of those tools is mental health first aid, going through a class similar to first aid or CPR. What do I need to know? What might I see and what do I do? So that we can all be speaking from the same handbook. We know that mental health, mental wellness, health in general, those decisions are often informed by our culture and our history and our families. And so, so often we're talking about different things when we think about what causes good health, what causes bad health, or what we perceive to be bad health. And so it's so important to get some information around not only what does all that mean, what does it mean to us, how we can support other people, but also what are those resources when I need to be able to reach out. You can't have wellness without mental wellness, just like you can't have wellness without physical wellness. And so I'm thinking that in terms of sustainability, that we really need to be speaking about mental health and mental wellness the way we speak about physical health and physical wellness and not be ashamed of it if we need help with our mental well-being or we need help around behavioral health. I think that it would do a lot of good to raise that awareness that mental health and physical health are just as equally as important and also reducing the stigma around mental health. Tell us more about equity in mental health. First of all, what is equity in mental health? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think before we talked about, historically, we used to talk about disparities, which means as though like maybe a community isn't trying hard enough or they're not accessing the resources. And now we talk about equity or health inequities that exist. And so what we know is that some communities have higher rates of health challenges or mental health challenges than others do. And what we know, as we were talking about before, is that oftentimes the systems at play, whether that's racism, lack of access because of health insurance, poverty, systems even being in a community, and all of those things often have connectivity to historical racism or just lack of access since the founding of our country. And so really addressing those inequities means that everyone can access healthcare as well as mental health care and not have barriers like we talked about before, those barriers that exist as someone is trying to be able to attend to or to be able to treat or monitor wellness in general. And to add on to that, I would also like to talk about equity in terms of, you know, we sometimes we've, I don't know if you all have seen the, you know, the bike analogy, where just because you give everybody a bike doesn't mean that that bike is going to work for that particular individual. When we think about equity, we're not only thinking about equal distribution of resources, we're talking about equity in terms of resources that meet the needs of the people that we're trying to provide resources to. I think for me, equity is really about digging a little bit deeper about how well we're meeting the needs of our communities. And if I could add just really quick, because I think Teresa brought up such an important point about it's not one size fits all. 
who also is making decisions about what's best for a community. And so often the voices of that community historically have been missing in the decision-making, in the, the funding choices. And so health equity means that at all levels that community members have access to being a part of and driving that discussion. Absolutely. Could you tell us more about the biggest health equity issues in New Mexico that impacts mental health services? So when I think about some of the health challenges, you know, it's such a multifaceted question. I think if you asked any of our Department of Health or Children, Youth and Families Department or Indian Affairs or Aging and Long-Term Services, or then if you went to the governments at each of the individuals, tribes, pueblos, or communities, or, you know, community by community, you know, I think the answer to that might look different because some of the challenges in those communities look different. And so I will say with humility, I know that in our state, access is such a huge barrier. It's such a huge challenge. But if I had to say, yeah, one of the biggest barriers is just making sure that everyone has access to healthcare and mental health care equally with equity. And I will say also just as a, if you had to say another like sub concern is also we cannot lose mental health professionals in our state that our young people, we need them to stay here. We need our young people. We need to pay them well. We need to train them well. We need to get them ready for the communities and the challenges that exist right now so that we can get there. Our uh, resource, we, we are so blessed with our young people and they are so smart and they have so many answers. And so often because of that lack of jobs and resources, we lose them to other states. And to add on to that, thank you, Suzanne. To add on to that, um, I wanted to say, in my opinion, there are at least three major barriers. First one, it being workforce, which we've already talked about, but access to internet is another major barrier. And I think that in the mental and behavioral health world, we, we utilize a service called telebehavioral health. And that's great that we're able to utilize that kind of service. But what if the person at the other end of the camera doesn't have adequate internet access, maybe doesn't have a computer, maybe doesn't have a phone? Again, we're not able to reach those individuals who really need the resource that we have available to provide. The other major issue, I think, with regard to access is transportation. Something as simple as being able to, you know, find a friend, drive yourself, or anything like that, catch the bus if you need to, to your mental health appointment you know, is really a significant barrier here in New Mexico, even in the city of Albuquerque, where we have a, a decent public transportation system. You know, in rural areas, transportation is a significant barrier. So I would say, in my opinion, those are the three top reasons why access is so challenging sometimes. So Teresa, you have a really rich history of working in New Mexico. How does your current role of leading Honoring Native Life as the program manager feed your soul? Well, like I said, growing up in New Mexico, I have a deep and serious commitment to making New Mexico a place where we can feel safe, we can feel comfortable, 
and we can be able to bring each other up when we're down. But what feeds my soul is to know again that it might be the pebble, throwing the pebble across the lake, I guess is what I'm saying, to create that wave that I may be just a pebble, but I know that as I continue my work, that that will create ripples and that people will become more, you know, in tune with the mental and behavioral health needs that we have here and be able to address those because we've raised some level of awareness around mental and behavioral health. Oh, that was so beautiful. Thank you. Suzanne, as a national trainer for youth mental health, what impact have you seen as a result of your work? What part of your work brings you joy? Mm, those are great questions. So the impact of the work, you know, when, when I first started training mental health first aid and training around mental health, there was so much work that went into explaining why we needed to talk about this. And again, I love Teresa's analogy of being one cog or one pebble or one part of this movement. And it's been so thrilling to see so many people coming together and people advocating and, and so being a part of something that's bigger than myself and also being able to learn and grow as well. I think during this time of uprisings and learning about racism and, and our opportunity to learn and grow, I have just loved seeing how we can get uncomfortable in service of centering other people. And so that has been so incredible to see and be a part of. What brings me joy, I think kind of what I was talking about before was being a part of a movement and hearing people say things like, I've never heard that recovery is possible. And because of this class, I believe that. Or, oh, you sparked a light bulb and I'm going to reach out differently to other people. I had in a class once somebody who reached out to me and said, I never knew that what I was experiencing was common and to have it normalized that I can go out and have conversations or I noticed signs and symptoms and somebody was thinking about suicide and we had a courageous conversation and they're getting better. It's story after story and it's not my story. It's our collective story of what can happen when we create space for everyone to be able to show up authentically. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for sharing that. So what are some things you do every day to maintain your own mental health? Um, I'm an avid hiker. So right now, because of the pandemic, one of the gifts that I have is I get to be home with my family. I have two boys and a husband and a dog named Mookie. And so Mookie is the big winner here is where I'm headed. For my own mental wellness, getting outside with my dog and seeing all of the beauty that New Mexico has to offer in safe ways with my mask and distancing to make sure that we're being healthy and following policies. But it's so important to be able to get outside and recharge. I'm going to have to agree on both points with Suzanne is I've got a, a couple of dogs as well. And one is Milo and one is Barney and they bring such great joy when you just need a hug and and you don't need anybody to say anything back to you. You just need a hug. But also going outside and, and really looking at what is around me and what I can draw upon that's right here in my backyard. And I'm thinking, you know, I heard a beautiful story about talking to the clouds and that the clouds don't have any judgment either. 
and after a while, if you give that negativity or your worries, I guess, if you will, to the clouds, then the clouds dissipate and then you can feel better about where you're at. So really thinking about what's around me and using those things that we have that are free. I mean, it doesn't cost a whole lot to go outside and stare at the clouds for a little while or to, you know, hug your daughter, hug your family member and hug your your dog. But just really being mindful about, you know, when I'm getting to that place of despair and, oh my gosh, you know, overwhelmed is to really pull myself back and say, okay, the, I do have these things at my disposal that I can use to make help myself feel better. Yeah, absolutely. You both brought up such incredible and important points. Thank you for that. Is there anything else that you would both like to add? If folks are interested in learning more about mental health first aid, there's actually a national website that's mentalhealthfirstaid.org that folks can go to if they're interested in taking a training or finding out if there's one close by in New Mexico. I will also share that my contact information if folks are interested in learning more about training or curriculum is Suzanne Perlman, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. And I also want to make sure that folks have in their toolbox our New Mexico Crisis and Access Line. We mentioned it before as a part of our conversation, and it's so important. You know, I never have crises where I'm holding the brochure that I need when it comes to the resources. And what's so great in our state is there's a lot of advocacy that went into having a 24-7 line that anybody in our state could access. And they have a website as well. But I will share both the website and the phone number for folks. And I would highly suggest for folks to add that to their toolbox, to their phone. The website is nmcrisisline.com. So NM as in New Mexico, crisisline.com. And then the crisis and access line that people can call is 1-855-NM-CRISIS or 855-662-7474. And their website has more resources, places where you can access and look for behavioral health providers, mental health providers, uh, wealth of resources. And the last one that I'll mention is the Pull Together, pulltogether.org is a website where folks can search county by county for everything from childcare to domestic violence resources, behavioral health services that exist specifically in their community and and are being updated consistently so folks can find if they need supports. And Suzanne, would you mind mentioning the number for the text line? Oh, that's a great point. Yes. So We also can use, and let me just share our national numbers too, because then it doesn't matter where you are in the country or who you're trying to support. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline, which focuses on any kind of emotional well-being support, is 800-273-2855. Once again, 800-273-2855. And the crisis text line is 741-741. And uh, you can text anything. You can text MHFA for mental health first aid or safe or home or hi. Any word that you text will get a conversation going and they can talk you through anything and resources or even connect you 
to state and local resources as well. Well, thank you, Teresa and Suzanne, for being here and talking with me. It truly means a lot. And I really appreciate all the work that you both have done. It's truly inspiring and so beneficial. So thank you so much. Thank you, Madhu. Thank you, Madhu. And thank you for helping us get the word out. We really work hard to raise awareness about mental and behavioral health. And so thank you all for helping us get the word out. Of course. Thank you for being here. For Generation Justice, I'm Madhumita Santana. Welcome back to Generation Justice and our special edition on mental and behavioral health, indigenous communities, and equity. The longer versions of these conversations can be found on all of our social media platforms. Just click the link. This is Antonio Garcia with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with Jennifer Nanez, an enrolled tribal member of the Pueblo of Acoma. She's a training and technical assistance coordinator with the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, SAMHSA, and Tribal Training and Technical Assistance Center. Ms. Nanez has been in the social work and education fields for over 20 years. And Connie O'Mara, a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Tribe who has worked to promote individual and community wellness for over 33 years. She currently works as a grantee technical assistant for Native Connections, a national youth-focused preventative initiative funded by the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration, SAMHSA. So Jennifer and Connie, welcome to Generation Justice. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So please share with us a little bit more about yourselves. Connie, would you like to start? I'll start with an introduction. Uh, Bojo, hello, Connie O'Mara, Indigenous, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Donjaba, Nishnabe, Potawatomi, Citizen Potawatomi, and Dow. My name is Connie O'Mara. Uh, I'm a member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, originally from Shawnee, Oklahoma. I've made Albuquerque my home, and I'm really, really glad to be here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Jennifer? Hi, I'm Kwazi, Kaitao Haupa, Dushinome Ats Aya Yakukuchinishanu. Hello, everybody. My name is Jennifer Ananias, and I'm from the Pueblo of Akuma. And I'm glad to be here with you all today. Thank you so much again. Can you share a bit more about your journey into the profession that you're currently in? I'll start. Um, I've been a social worker for 30 years. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but of late, I've been doing training and technical assistance for the last 12 years, all in Native communities. I do a little bit of clinical work on the side. My title is Training and Technical Assistance Coordinator, and we do a lot of outreach. We work with all of the 573 plus tribes across the nation. And so I've been very privileged to do this work, learning more about cultures within culture, even if we share some things in common. You know, we all have different languages, we all have different approaches. So I just feel really gifted to have this, you know, work to do every day. So thank you, Miigwech. 
Thank you, Connie. Jennifer, did you have some feedback on that question? Sure. So I kind of fell into social work early in my college years at New Mexico State and found social work after looking at different majors over time, education, even even engineering, <laughs> and found that when I took my first social work class, it really spoke to me. And it made me also think about things that were happening within my own community and, and around me that really needed attention. And I think over the course of time, it really just became the profession that I've come to love. So I've been in social work for about 25 some odd years now. I'm a master's level social worker. I'm not independently licensed just yet, but the work I've done in the field and really have enjoyed has just always been working within our tribal communities. So I'm fortunate enough to be a colleague of Connie's. I work also with as a TTA coordinator, training and tribal training and technical assistance coordinator, and really enjoy being able to work not only locally with the tribes in my prior roles and even in this current role here, but now nationally with other tribes working in areas to promote mental health, promote, again, wellness within their communities. And that's something I've always been interested in in being a part of. That sounds like some really awesome work that both of you are doing. And both of you have specialized in in working with Indigenous peoples or youth. And, And why is this important to you each? Maybe, Jennifer, we can start with you. Sure. Well, part of it is because I'm an Indigenous woman. You know, I grew up in the Pueblo of Acoma. I am biracial. I grew up there on reservation with my father and my mother and my family. And we came from an, an, a large extended, you know, traditional family. We all grew up together, oftentimes, sometimes even within all the same household. And I think understanding some of the needs within our community, and within our tribe, and understand how those have been very different from the greater population out there was something that I always wanted to focus on. And part of the reason why I've always worked within tribal communities was what my grandfather used to always tell us is that we're here to serve. We're here to be of service to each other, to take care of each other. And that's always a concept that's within our tribal communities of how we care for each other. And I think that really hit home for me in this particular field is that it really is a part of what we do as social workers as we take care of each other in this field. We take care of our communities within this field. And that for me was giving back to my people, giving back to my community, making sure that I gave back and I made sure I was taking care of people like my grandparents asked me to do. And so I really felt that that service calling is part of that work within our tribal communities is to be of service to our people. Thank you so much for that. And Connie, why would you say that this specialized work is really important? I really agree with Jennifer. You know, being a mom, you just have that instinct. But also, I really believe that my own childhood played a role because it wasn't easy and there were challenges. And I did experience trauma. I grew up with alcohol in my home. And there were some heartbreaking moments that I'm healing from today. And so I'm proof that you can heal from that. And I know many of our youth struggle with that. And so when you have been there, sometimes you can connect with someone in need of help easier. And when you're a good listener, you know what it took for you to find the path of wellness. 
then you can do that. You can, you know, repeat that and support other people. So that's one of the main reasons. But there's another really important reason why I do the work with youth. I'll be honest with you. I learn so much from them. I learn more from them than I could ever teach them. They come with this energy and information and even intelligence that, you know, far surpasses mine. So I hope it's an exchange um, that that benefits both of us. And um, they also give me so much energy myself. On those days, you know, I'm I'm an elder now. And on those days where I'm feeling like an elder, I just have one interaction with the youth and it makes all the difference in the world. They give me hope. And while we're talking about that exchange What's the importance of Indigenous youth connecting with elders and and others in the communities that they come from? I definitely think it's important that our youth and our elders connect for two reasons. One, like Connie is saying, you know, it really does give some needed and added energy to our elders within their day-to-day, you know, timeframes here with us. But two, because the elders have so much wisdom to share with our young people about the history, about our traditions, about our language, our religions, our practices, and understanding what those really mean. But what's so neat about the youth, again, is that innovation that they have, that energy that they have to keep those going and keep those alive, and really ways to help share them with each other, I think is really amazing. But I also think that because our communities have gotten away from who we were as people where we had these multi-generational families and systems constantly in place. You know, I grew up with my grandparents. I grew up with my great-grandparents all the way through till my college years. And we've gotten away from that over the course of time. So reintroducing that with, again, this elder and, and youth collaboration, no matter how it's done, really brings us back as to who we are as Indigenous people. Thank you, Jennifer, so much for that beautiful response. And and Connie, would you like to also give your response? Well, as I was saying, you know, in our precious youth, they have challenges too. It's not easy both living in a tribal community sometimes or living in an urban community sometimes. And so there's things that they're dealing with that our elders dealt with too. And that's the, you know, effects of historical trauma and current trauma And so you need to feel that connection to somebody who really cares and someone who has knowledge that you're willing to listen to. And so I think it's really important for us to make ourselves available, but also for it to be very comfortable for them to be around us. And so we, I think we really need to realize their needs and realize our needs because in order to help them, we have to listen to them. Mm -hmm. We have to learn from them what will really work. When we keep trying to do things, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way. Oh, I really want every one of our youth to learn their own culture. I want my, I'm teaching my granddaughter culture. She's three years old and I'm working on ways to, for her to learn starting from a young age. But we have to do it in a way that's respectful for those youth that figures as like, as Jennifer says, that they, you know, they find a way to connect with us in a good way so that they feel comfortable. And Connie, could you talk more about some of the stigma and false narratives around mental health that may be more specific to Indigenous populations? Well, I definitely agree with Jennifer that the way our communities, the way I learned is not to separate 
mental health from an overall wellness that we can all enjoy and that we always work towards and that we actually had ways built in to our societies and tribes already to reach wellness at any given point in our lives. So I I think that that's so important to understand that when we're developing systems and interventions and, you know, strategies for increasing mental health in our communities, that we really understand the way that particular tribe looks at wellness so that we can meet that need. And I know that's going to be difficult because there's two systems going on. But I really feel, and I know Jennifer agrees, I really feel that we can blend those systems and make it work for our tribal communities so that more and more people are able to be supported and not have that stigma around it. It's just part of being human, that you have challenges, you know, that you have difficulties in your life that you have to overcome and that that doesn't make you, you know, wrong. It's not what's wrong, it's what happened. And how we look at that makes a big difference. And Jennifer, what would you say some of the stigmas and false narratives around mental health are more specific to Indigenous populations? It's gotten separated over time, it, looking at mental health as part of overall health care and health for ourselves, that idea that we're whole beings. And Western medicine really played a large role in that, in separating out what was mental health-related issues and saying, oh, that gets treated over there by someone else in another room, in another building, and we don't even talk about it because it's such a taboo topic. And that's wrong. You know, it really has been a disservice to our people in part because we never treated ourselves in that manner. When we worked with holistic medicine as indigenous people, we never left that feeling out. You know, how are you feeling? You know, what emotions are you having? Where is that coming from? What happened that brought that feeling upon you is something that we always paid attention to. When it became taboo to talk about it, it became a secret issue, something that we bury, something that we don't address. And we really do need to bring it back in because we have that chance and that need to talk about those things that affect us, to talk about what impacts us, to talk about those traumas and how They've heard us over time, so we can heal from that. And that's, I think, been the biggest issue with stigma with regards to mental health is that it's been separated out from overall health care and the overall idea of health. And so getting back to that really is not just saying, okay, we're getting back to an idealized form of health overall. It's an indigenous form of health, of looking at us as, as a whole being. Definitely. Thank you for that. And and while we're on the topic, what are some of the assets that Indigenous communities have that support wellness and mental health? I do think that for our communities, the fact that we have, especially here in the Southwest, so many of our tribes and tribal nations really nationally that are rooted very deeply within their tradition and their culture and their language is incredibly important and incredibly supportive to these efforts because that's protection. Our culture is protective, our culture is prevention. And I think trying to make sure that we impress that upon our work that we do for those who are non-Indian working in tribal communities, such as the federal government, such as federal grants that come into play 
federal funding systems that come into play that understand that really it's who we are that's most supportive, not what evidence-based practice model you want us to utilize is most important. No, it's who we are and what we have to bring to the table that matters and makes us resilient and helps us with our resilience over time really is incredibly important. And for those of us who are still learning our traditions and learning our language, and I'll say for one that I'm one, you know, that it's also that connection that we have to understanding who we are that is, again, very supportive of our efforts within our own mental health. And having that connection and having that deeper understanding of this long history that we have, this long tradition that we have, this long culture and religion that we have really helps us and, and supports us over the course of time. So I think that's what's really unique about indigenous populations overall is that's something we have that's been in place for a millennia. And, you know, it's only now that Western medicine is beginning to recognize it, something that we've known all along. And then I'd love to go to Connie again. What are the assets that Indigenous communities have that really support wellness and mental health? One of the things that I've always been impressed by now that I'm here in the Southwest is there's a ceremony for every stage of development that is meant to maintain wellness. And those ceremonies are stronger here than they are in some of our other communities, but our other communities are you know, learning a lot and coming back to those. So those, those are the assets, those medicine people that live on and pass that tradition on to other people that are generous with their love and spirit to help people even to this day. That's definitely an asset, and Jennifer was talking about that. The other thing is that many people in our communities are starting when their children are very young to teach those. There was a little interruption with historical trauma and, and other trauma that happened, but there's a rebirth in you know, the importance, and there's a lot of prevention dollars that go towards helping families and parents you know, bring this forward, something that they may have lost but then can regain to take that forward to our generations. We need these ways to continue. We need to teach these to our children. We need to maintain that connection wherever we live. And so I think that's really something that is of a huge asset in our communities. And that's also thanks to federal dollars. So we are very grateful. Thank you so much for that, Connie. And I'd like to go to Jennifer and then Connie with this next one. What are some of the disparities and inequities that you might see in indigenous youth versus other populations? I think the inequities that we see aren't, again, specific to, say, our youth, because our youth do not have deficits. Our youth have strengths. Our youth have resources. Our youth have resilience. But when we talk about the deficits that are out there, they have been imposed in part because policy systems that are in place that don't always keep in mind our indigenous populations and our needs. And right now during this pandemic, it's a really good example of that. We talk about internet access, just, you know, basic internet access for our communities is huge. And we're seeing right now with the pandemic that it's hindering education, it's hindering healthcare access, it's hindering the ability to communicate with each other in part because our families are separated during this time frame. You know, those multi-generational family systems that we have 
and have always been a part of and always gathered together, we can't do because of the pandemic. But those things like, again, internet access have an impact on it. And when we talk about those kinds of deficits or social determinants of health that we don't always have access to, it's not in part because we didn't create them ourselves. If we had the ability to do that on every level, we wouldn't have these issues, but we get caught up in policy, both state policy, federal policy, that creates those issues or doesn't support those issues like healthcare funding, like education funding, like the basic needs that we consider like, you know, electricity, water. And now we talk about telecommunications like internet and telephone lines now that are really necessary. And when we think about it in the healthcare and the mental health care realm, especially, we have to think about that because those systems are what impacts our access to health, our access to mental health care. Again, take, for instance, the Indian Health Service System for all of what we call the Albuquerque area. And that's all of the 27 tribes within that catchment from Southern Colorado all the way down to West Texas and Isleta del Sur Pueblo. And it encompasses all of the tribes and the Apache nations and then the three independent Navajo bands. There's 12 behavioral health care providers. That's it in the IHS system for all of those tribes and all of those tribal members. And so when we talk about, again, those deficits, it's not something that we want. We need providers. We want providers. And we want to grow our own providers from our population to promote our own people up into those positions because we know what we need as treatment providers. We know what we need as prevention providers within our community, as peer support workers within our community. But we get caught up in these funding systems. So those are things that I think we really have to understand. It's not only the trauma history you know, that we have that has impacted our communities, the federal policy over the course of time that has impacted where we are today, but how do we advocate for ourselves as well is really incredibly important now because we have that political power, we have that political will to bring these things to forbearance and show what we need because now we understand it. And that makes us, again, incredibly powerful as well, too, because we have that ability now to speak to that, to advocate for that, to be activistic about that, about what supports our health and mental health. And I hope that we see changes in the coming years. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Jennifer. And Connie, what are some of the disparities and inequities that you might see among Indigenous youth populations versus others? Well, I think, you know, Jennifer covered those really well. Just basic needs in many of our communities. We have a problem with clean, healthy water in our communities. We have uh, food insecurity in many of our communities. We have lack of lack of access to education. You know, one of the things that is probably the most harmful are racist kinds of things that our young people are subjected to. And things like even, you know, team names that, you know, use our indigenous names in not a good way. And so as far as them trying to develop an identity around know who they are and, and that they're very they come from strong people it's very challenging but just basic poverty issues you know and our youth many of them are in rural areas they're you know don't have a lot available to them 
And sometimes it can really seem hopeless. There's less resources, less opportunities. That said, despite all that, in the poorest community of our nation, South Dakota, our youth were, you know, the main organizers around the Water is Life movement to stop the pipeline. So it obviously, if we focus on their resilience and their strengths and help them tell their stories and help them get the word out and help them organize, I bet you many of those youth are much better than they were before just because they felt like they had some power and they could make a difference and they did make a difference. They taught us elders how to do it. So I feel very hopeful for that. And starting again with you, Connie, what are some things that you do every day to maintain your own sense of wellness? That's a really good question. Today's a really good day to ask me because I've been multitasking. I took, you know, typically, I guess a social worker thing, we end up taking on more because we want to help more. And so I was just talking about that on our webinar is that I do have a practice that I do every day. Usually it's in the morning, but it occurs every day. It's just to get centered. It's to do my prayers, to smudge in the morning, to make sure those prayers go up to creator. And then, you know, noticing when I'm struggling. And I've pulled in Jennifer before as my colleague when I was struggling, sometimes just sharing it, getting outside of yourself and sharing it and getting that support is enough get you through the whole week. So I think it's just something that we have to build in as a practice in our everyday lives. And we have to notice because if we don't notice, sometimes it's too late and we don't take good care of ourselves. So I'm learning that still, still learning. Yeah, that's really important. Jennifer, what do you do every day to maintain your own sense of wellness? That's definitely something I'm working on too, between work and being a mom and Right now, having a daughter at home who is working on a virtual school, it can get a little hectic at times and trying to make sure everything's still running and smoothly within the household and still trying to take care of work-related things. It can get hard. But for me, I think one of the things I like to do is, is definitely pray. Before I go to sleep at night, I make sure I'm, I'm praying because it really helps me recenter myself for the day helps me kind of calm down from the day helps me reset for the following day and then throughout the day I try and take little breaks maybe it's you know to listen to music or to do something you know with my daughter we go for a walk or we get out and play for a little bit that helps both of us and really helps me and I find I do have to work at it because I can be a bit of a workaholic and I've been told that very many times <laughs> Lots of people, <laughs> including family members, that it is hard to step away. But we have to practice what we preach. You know, we tell folks to take care of themselves. We encourage folks and we support folks in that. But we also have to learn how to model it for them, but also for ourselves as well, too. And this pandemic, I think, has actually really taught me that because one, working from home has been a new experience for me and learning how to balance that and learning how to practice it and model that for my daughter during the day, during a work day, during a busy day. How do we take some breathers? And it could be a dance break. It could be a music break. It could be something along those lines. But it, it helps to help us recenter. But again, I think the biggest part and at the end of the day is, has always been that prayer for me to sit and just pray 
and to think and to kind of meditate on the day and on the needs of everybody that I have within my family. And even if we can't provide support to everybody, that at least prayer and lifting them up in prayer really is, again, a way of protection as best we can when we can't be there. Thank you again for that, Jennifer. And Connie, where can people find resources and more information about your work? We have a couple of websites. One of them is the SAMHSA Tribal Training and Technical Assistance Center website. Any tribal or urban community across the United States can make a training and technical assistance request. Until we run out of funds, we usually respond to all of those requests that are related to substance misuse, suicide prevention, mental health and wellness, those kinds of things. So that's one way. We also have do you know training technical assistance for Native Connections, which is a huge grant program for our Native people across the country to really focus on suicide and substance misuse prevention. But we we tweak it so it's wellness. It's just looking at that big picture that Jennifer described. So those are a couple of ways. Tribal Tech also takes new contracts and requests when needed. We've done some free programming for the American Indian Life Skills project um, with our professor from Stanford. So, you know, there's lots of different ways. So we're real open to have being contacted to support our Native people out there. Jennifer, where can people find resources and more info about your work? Well, being that I work with Connie, the Connie hit the majority of the sites that are out there. But a few other resources to consider, especially for Indigenous youth, are sites like We Are Native. And that's a wonderful site that has a lot of good information, both on overall health and mental health care for Indigenous youth within the United States. So it's a really great resource. Centers for Native American Youth as well, too, is another great resource that touches on overall health as well as mental health needs for our youth. And these are, again, agencies that we work closely with over time and promote within our work, both with our agency and in other roles that we've had over the course of time. These are some wonderful resources that are, are out there for our youth and for our communities to utilize. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Is there anything else that you, Connie, or Jennifer would like to add? I just want to say that Jennifer, Teresa, and myself practice what we preach. So we've been working in collaboration among our different organizations until we stole Jennifer away. And we wanted to show that when you work in collaboration, you can serve more people. You can cross lines when one organization can't do one thing. You can share resources. And so that's been a long friendship and a long collaboration. And I'm really proud that it just comes natural to us to do that. But we could offer that as, you know, an example of what all people can do. So that's the only thing I wanted to add. And I think with the Honoring Native Life Project, it's really, you know, helped for some of those things. But it's helped us a lot, too, in getting great information out about what you can't do with a project like Honoring Native Life across nationally. So they realize, hey, this is powerful. So that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. And, and Jennifer? Yeah, and I definitely agree with Connie that that collaboration has really been key, in part because we have these issues where we don't always have the resources enough in one program or project to do everything we want to do. So we do end up sharing, you know, between each other. And if at all possible, that's one of the best ways to work is across lines and with collaboration like we've been able to do a generation justice. It's just amazing what we could accomplish all together. But I think one of the biggest things too that I, I wanna share is this, again, this idea of service, 
that, you know, with the fields that we work in and that understanding of who we are in, as Indigenous people, you know, I see a lot of our youth really understanding that concept of service to each other. And that's amazing because there's so much that we can change both for our communities, but really nationally, if we begin to get back to that idea of how do we serve each other? How do we take care of each other? And how do we care for ourselves in that so we can care for others? And I think that's one of the biggest pieces that I like to convey is that as we work in collaboration, it really does help us with that idea of how do we serve with each other and how do we serve our communities? And what do we give back to our communities? Because in working with our communities, we gain a lot. We really do. We gain that energy. We gain that knowledge. We gain that blessing that they give upon us with all that work that comes from it. But in turn, we have to be able to give back. And how do we give back is how we serve. And so when we think about that concept, again, you see that. And really that's you know, what we're here for, what we've been placed on this earth to do is to provide that to each other. And so if I could pass along any message, when we think about overall youth and our youth mental health and youth within our communities and for our populations as a whole, is that if we get back into that mode of both service and self-care, we really have that, again, chance to take care of each other well and really build our communities up and build that support structure up and build that health and wellness and balance for ourselves all together. Well, Hedna, thank you so much, Jennifer and Connie, for sharing your time with us and the work that you do within our communities. Thank you for the opportunity, AJ. I really appreciate it. It was a beautiful, beautiful time together. So thanks. And Dawa, thank you very much, AJ. This was fun. I really enjoyed the talk. <laughs> for Generation Justice, I'm Antonio Garcia. The full interview with Connie and Jennifer is available on our social media platforms. Our next song highlights tonight's theme of healing and moving toward a more healed self. Here is Ionwatha Forgives by Joanne Shenandoah. Hiawatha Luaya de Laqua Dun Honan Tulho We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community health and wellness. We'd like to thank our guests, Teresa Gomez, Suzanne Perlman, Jennifer Nanez, and Connie O'Mara. Tonight's program was produced by Roberta Rael and Barbara Ramirez. Interviews were conducted by Madumita Santanam and myself with editing support from Roman Garcia. And thank you to our social media producer, Lily Lucow. We want to give a big shout out to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you. K 
KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud, Apple, and Google Podcasts. We're also active on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's also where you can find the full interviews from tonight's program. And remember to follow our playlists on Spotify. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Con Alma Health Foundation, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of the Nation by P.O.D. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. I am Antonio Garcia. Good night and stay well, New Mexico. <laughs>